Youthful take. To a youthful take. Boom. Season two. I'm gonna start barking. Episode three. Do it again right now. Run. Right. I'm gonna start barking at the beginning of each episode. Should I bark the amount of episodes we're into the season? What episode are we on? Three. Yeah. Hold, hold, hold. All right. Episode three, baby. All right. Can we stop? Episode three. Okay, let's get into the news. <laughs> Here are our major points for this week. Uh, we got the Trump trial. Trump trial. Biden election, whatever. Getting told to drop out. Yep. Biden just... Then. Israel always. Then. Uh, uh, election night this week. There was an election. Then. Republican debate. And then. No. My, my, shh, shh, don't say it. Save it for... Save it. Okay. It's fine. a surprise. It's not a big deal, but all right. Okay. Uh, Jack, talk about Trump trial for me. <clears throat> Trump is proving, again, why he's an asshole. Just... Uh, he went on the stand, I want to say, past, I don't know, what, five days ago? No. Sometime in the week, sometime in the last week, he went on the stand, and he was, well, to put it lightly, he was an asshole on the stand. And now he's calling well, for... context, Trump is in court well, yeah. under charges of a civil trial. So he can't go to jail. He can just pay a lot of money for, like, financial fraud, inflating his business numbers, just shady things. And he's calling it a witch hunt and a lie, which is... What we expect. And now he wants it to be televised. Um, he wants to be nationally be televised because he thinks it is unfair. He thinks the federal government is coming after him Donald because he's, he's... Donald behaves like he's three years old. Everything's unfair. Donald Everything's unfair. Everyone's going after him, Donald. On the other side, we have President Biden, our next headline, getting uh, told to drop out. From Sam. a few major political factors, players, Tim Ryan, former Republican senator. Um, and David Axelrod, Axe, is... Said he signed for Biden to, and I, I somewhat agree. I I don't think I think he's doing a good job, but it's like Biden's not a a guy who's rallying the populist support of Americans. I think there are. I mean, it might be too late for another for a better option, Gavin Newsom. But I just I, I don't think Biden's a good option anymore. I mean, I don't think policy wise he's a bad option. I just don't think he's. I don't think he has a good enough chance to be Trump. I just no, he has no chance. Uh, honestly, honestly, if he when goes I against see, Trump, he's not winning. Talk, he's opinion. just not convincing. No, not anymore. He's he's and just his demeanor. I guess he feels. I mean, he's he's got that old he's man like slow yeah, demeanor. It's just not. Old. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Better the Democrats <clears> is a better option. Um, Segway to Israel, the the Hamas war. Israel Hamas war. Um, currently Israel is surrounding the Hamas headquarters. They're in, they're in Gaza they're, City. They're on a pause. Right yeah, now. Today, currently, what is today? Today is today November, is November 11th. 11th. Um, they are opening, they're pausing their uh, military activity currently to open up a civilian corridor into southern Gaza. So they are actively helping civilians that are in north, stuck in northern Gaza to move south to get out of harm's way. I think they that's have, very good from them. They have surrounded the I Hamas headquarters, and the Hamas headquarters are located under a hospital. So that's kind of rough. I, I mean, Hamas just so loves difficult. putting civilians in harm's way. So that if the Israelis do anything to harm any civilians, Hamas can be like, oh, they're harming our civilians. When Hamas were the people who put those civilians in harm's way. Mm-hmm. This takes us to our next part of the Israel Hamas the implications. We're seeing all over social media these videos of these people who are taking down posters of kidnapped, like, Israeli people. From October 7th. From that just makes me so angry to see that. It's like, what are you doing? Just, that makes me so pissed. Like, and it's, it's, it's and like when they cool. do it, they're always, like, smiling and they're, like, laughing. They always have an arrogance about me. it. 
and like a, a fucking pissed entitlement. off. Entitlement. Pardon my They're entitled to rip down posters of hostages. It's like, <laughs> I, did, I don't know if they know what they're doing. Uh, I think they're just misinformed dumbasses who think they're doing the right thing and they just need to stop. Because yeah. tearing down a poster of a kidnapped, like, child, despite baby. anything, a kidnapped child, you don't do that. It's not okay in I know any any It's not the Palestinian cause. A call, a call for two-state solution to Palestinian representation in Israel, that has nothing to do with Hamas. That's the opposite of, of Hamas. Yeah. And there's and a then, lack of understanding there. I think there just needs to be... We talked about this in our interview today, but I think there needs to be more discourse between people that side with... Israel in this conflict, people that say they side with Palestine in this conflict. And I think a lot of people on both sides are not willing to listen to the other side. And if you are going around tearing down posters of hostages and doing terrible things like that, and you're not willing to listen to the Israeli perspective, you're not helping anyone. You're hurting the Palestinian cause because Hamas does not represent that. And on the same side with the Israelis. I, I, I see a little bit less of it, but still, there are a lot of hardline Israelis. Like, we won't, no two states, always Israel, no matter what. That's the only thing they can see. And I, I'm sure there's some validity to what they're saying, but you have to be able to listen to the Palestinian perspective. Because there's never going to be peace in the region if Israelis can't listen to Palestinians and Palestinians can't listen to Israelis. I think the number one thing right now, aside from Hamas, because Hamas's charter says we want to eradicate Israel. So if there, there's no negotiating with that. What there is negotiating with is Palestinian civilians that are living, living in Gaza, living in the West Bank, living in Israeli cities. See what they actually want, who are affiliated with Hamas, what do they want? I think the only way to peace is actually listening to each other and not continuing to, to record videos. Uh, I see a lot of this on the internet where people record videos reporting either side and, and just going on and on about their point. That doesn't go anywhere. You're just trying to convince someone of what you believe and not listening to what other people believe to try to actually have peace. That was a Sam Greenberg rant there. Um, in my opinion, bottom line, it's bottom line. It's not okay in any regard to tear down posters of kidnapped people in general, and it gets me infuriated when I see I these videos of these, so of these people who are claiming they're helping the Palestinian cause by tearing down posters of kidnapped Israeli people. Um, yeah. I get fired up. I, I'm like red right now. Sam could see it, but. Um, Let's, let's, oh wait, we have one more point, oh, right? Sam wanted to talk okay. about something. Um, Rashid, oh, in Congress this week, Rashida Tlaib, who is a uh, liberal Congress, uh, Democrat Congresswoman, was censored in a vote. I think 22 Democrats signed for public to censor her for comments she made against Israel. I disagree with what she said, but I don't think it's okay to censor someone because it's not democracy. You have to be able to listen to other people. And I think Rashida Tlaib needs to listen. I think she's, I think... What she's saying, I don't agree with, but to censor her doesn't get anywhere. Because then we're not listening to the other side. We're never going to understand. We're never going to get peace. If we're stuck in our ways, that's not helpful at all. I'm going to be honest. I don't know much about what was said, so I'm not going to give an opinion here. Mm -hmm. um, but for you listeners, just take in whatever Sam said, and you can do with that what you wish. Um, Next. Uh, continuing, there are tons of riots, and not riots, protests, riots. I mean... All sorts of things. In this example, I'm going to talk about it was a riot, but protests, demonstrations across America for both sides, and there's a lot of that going on. Recently, this week, I think Wednesday or Thursday night, 
I may be wrong, that's what I think. Um, at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, this is kind of ironic because it's called the Museum of Tolerance, mm-hmm. there was fistfights between Israeli and Palestinian protesters. And that museum, I volunteer there many Sundays. That's just crazy to see. It's like nothing about that museum is in support of violence for either side. It's okay if you're passionate. It's okay if you're so riled up about this issue. It's a really tough issue. Just do it in a peaceful way. But to every time I see fist, I feel like people are looking for fights at this point. I just yeah, I see a lot a lot of these videos where it's like these protests, and then people just get so violent with each other. You know. Mm -hmm. I just it's okay to be passionate about either side. I I mean, obviously violence that that's what we're in a situation is for is violence. Hamas is violent. But it's okay to be passionate and, and express what you believe and listen to, and importantly listen to other people what they believe. But for that turn to that passion turns to violence is once again not helpful. Right. Especially at the Museum of Tolerance. Yeah. Alright, next next point. We got um, yeah. election night in America, this which week. happened this past Tuesday. Yep. Um, um couple yeah. big things. Andy Bashir, Democrat. Democrat in Kentucky. In he Kentucky. the wow. incumbent. Wow. He uh Kentucky defended his throne. That's always a weird thing. How come there are a lot of there there are Democrats there are Democrat I know. There are Democrat governors in highly red states yeah, who no. never vote for Biden in the election. And there are Republican governors in blue states that would never vote for Trump in an election. I know. It's, 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 it's weird. Weird. I think I heard I something that like they like them because they have good, just overall state policies. I think it's a, a really think, oh, we don't understand because it's really within the state. Yes. Policies and yeah, we don't, and we don't, really, we don't really see it. California. But Andy Bashir, we li- I listened to a speech after. He sounds uh, like a really nice guy. Uh, in Virginia, good, a lot of democratic victories in the state assembly. Abortion. Abortion won across. I mean, abortion not, is a no, winner no. of the night. Uh, well, I guess. That. The right to choose was a the winner. right to choose. Um, yes. No one's in More favor, eloquently no put, thank you. No one's in favor of having. That's. A, I mean, no one's in favor of having an abortion, but the right to choose is what people are fighting for. I would say, and that one across America, and that's a good. I mean, I feel like it's a good sign for people that support the right to choose in the twenty twenty four election. Like, yeah, it's a despite trend. all these Republican lawmakers going trying their best to limit access to abortion, the American people again and again for the past few years have voted. In favor of the right to choose. And last big headline, Tate Reeves won in Mississippi. The Republican defended his throne in Mississippi. All right, next, we had the... Republican debate. Ever entertaining Republican debate. Who cares? Trump's the nominee. It's just funny. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny to watch them. Vivek. Yeah, Trump's going to win either way. He's going to be in the general. But um, it's but, funny uh, to see Vivek and Nikki Haley go at each other. Yeah. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, not much to say there. Not it's much kind to say of there. Just, it's kind of irrelevant at this point. Yeah, Realistically, like honestly, none of those guys are going anywhere. Uh, last thing, Sam's a little fun. Lionel Messi. Yep. Won the Ballon d'Or for his eighth Ballon d'Or. Anyone listening to this? For people, hold on, Sam. For people like me who aren't really into soccer, what would, did that night mean? What were the awards? What do those awards mean? Who won what? The Ballon d'Or. I think it was a week and a half ago now. Okay. The Ballon d'Or is pretty much anyone's a basketball fan or a football fan, American football fan. It's the award ceremony where they give out the MVP, the Rookie of the Year, those types of things, Office Player of the Year. They do that for soccer as well. 
And Messi won the MVP at 36 years old. So Jude old Bellingham. Belly goal. We all know that. Jude Bellingham, one young, young player of the year. Yeah. Cool. Um, How old is he? Like 19 or something? He's 20. Jesus he's 20. Christ. But I think it's really exciting. If anyone listening to this is a Ronaldo fan, I'm going to tell you one thing. Shut your mouth. Whoa. Why? I have to shut your mouth. Why? Because Messi's the goat. Eight Ballon Did Messi deserve the Ballon d'Or? Absolutely. Carries was the best If player, you guys disagree, please text... DM the Instagram. Uh, Holland, Holland was great. He scored a lot of goals. His goals weren't impressive. He didn't score in the Champions League final. He didn't score in the FA Cup final. Wow. Uh, that's enough said. Enough said. Who, who, what else were like big? Isn't there the goalkeeper Diego award that's, that's big? The guy, we all remember that save at the end of the World Cup where he stuck out his leg and saved the... Oh, that game. was crazy. That was him. He won he goalkeeper won of the goalkeeper year. year. Uh, I don't know if he deserved that, but he did. That was a crazy save. I remember yeah. that. Um, that's all for news all today. Right. Yeah. yeah. Very good interview. Very good interview. Stay tuned. Probably, honestly, my favorite interview so far. And I'll go on record saying that. Jack's proud of our interview today. Alright, see ya. Sam, today our guest is Mike Fior. Mike is a politician and lawyer serving as the LA City Attorney from 2013 to 2022. Mike also previously served three terms in the California State Assembly, as well as served as a member of the LA City Council from 1995 to 2001. Mike is also a candidate for United States Congress as he is running to represent the 30th District of California in the House of Representatives, which is the seat that um, Adam Schiff currently holds. Uh, Mike, thank you for coming on, and welcome to A Youthful Take. It's great to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Of course. Um, first question, you know, we usually, our first question is usually like, you know, how did you get your start in politics? What, what, what first, you know, prompted you? What was the exigence that got you <clears throat> wow, good started? Wow, work, Thank you. Um, but we're going to start with some more fun questions. Okay. Um, you know, you are out there every day campa- campaigning for Congress because you're running. Um, what do you see are the top two issues in the race? Like, what, what, what are the top two most important issues to the people you see out platform. there? Yeah, campaign. I think the most important issue, pretty much for everybody in our region now, is homelessness. Mm-hmm. So I hear about that all the time. And then protecting democracy. Yep. Especially as people are hearing Trump again talk about how he will exact vengeance on his political opponents were he president. Um, talk about, again, the election process and trying to populate the bureaucracy only with people who agree with him. Yeah. Mm. So I think those two issues probably rise to the top of the charts for most constituents I talk to. Mm. Homelessness, Homelessness and, and democracy. Overall democracy. Yeah. It's crazy that I mean, that has to be an issue. It is an extraordinary I mean, for you guys. You know, I grew up um, at a time when I took that for granted. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, when I was a little kid, it was a very tumultuous time. It was the, the 1960s. It was a lot of protests, major, major assassinations, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And I remember, as a very, very small boy, the feeling of how uncertain and things felt. It was a very worrisome period. But I never thought that the very democracy that we live in would be at risk. And so now, several decades later, to think that, it's unbelievable, it's unbelievable. but it's a real concern. 
Yeah. And again, on the streets every day, when people see neighbors who are sleeping on the sidewalk or in tents or are concerned about their own personal safety or, you know, it's just, this is a crisis we have to contend with. And while most people don't think Congress can do something about it, I think we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, from a current event standpoint, let's discuss Israel for a little bit. Uh, we know that you were the former executive director for Bet... Bet Zedek. You mentioned that earlier. Poor pronunciation, but which means you'll probably have a unique perspective on the Israel-Hamas war. So, A, what are your thoughts and position on the Israel-Hamas war? And B, this podcast is always about the future, so tell us, in your opinion, how do you envision Gaza, Gaza in five years? So these are very important and questions that are very complicated to answer. Yeah. And, you know, first let me talk about my perspective on the conflict that we see. So I've always been a strong proponent of what's called a two-state solution mm-hmm. to the Middle East. I think that Israelis and Palestinians should be able to coexist and live by side by side. And you might know historically there were opportunities not that long ago for that very thing to happen. Yeah. Uh, but they were squandered. Those opportunities were squandered. And now the situation feels very desperate. When Hamas came into southern Israel and brutally killed and worse, and other, I mean, they they killed people, they decapitated people, they did so in a bloodthirsty, merciless way, and the key word is to civilians. They purposely sought defenseless, innocent civilians Mm -hmm. to be killed or to be taken hostage. Mm -hmm. And it was a horrific atrocity when that happened. And I think it shook Israel to its core. The thing about Israelis is that they historically have felt, if nothing else, that they are in a homeland that's safe and that that will be protected for them. And that was shattered by October 7th. Mm-hmm. Hamas is not an organization committed to political discourse. Hamas is an organization committed to wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Israel needed to respond. Mm-hmm. The response has also taken many, many innocent Palestinian lives. And that's causing great anguish in Israel and around the world. Uh, Israel, there are calls for what is called a ceasefire. But those calls for a ceasefire misunderstand that if Israel were to simply stop all its operations, it would allow Hamas to rearm mm-hmm. and continue to be a threat. And it made very clear the kind of threat it intends to be. Yeah, they are pausing today. That was announced at the... There are two different things, uh-huh. though, I want to say. The one is a pause, is and the other is a ceasefire. Cease yeah, it's yeah. different. different. The, the, a ceasefire means we're going to just stop. A pause means there's going to be a break. Mm-hmm. There need to be more and longer breaks to allow innocent civilians yes. to find their way to safety. What makes this so complicated, guys, is that Hamas purposely cites its operations and its weaponry 
in civilian locations, yeah. particularly because they have no regard for civilian life and they want those civilians to be in harm's way. Yeah. And when they are killed, then Hamas gets to try to display that it deserves some sympathy. <laughs> it's a tactic that is very hard to grapple with if you're Israel. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, uh, obviously there are a lot of nuances to this conversation, it's a very complicated conversation, but I want you to think about how you would feel if you were a kid in southern Israel and this happened to your family, how you would feel. You would want something done to assure your safety and security down the road. Um, at the same time, there are Palestinian parents who are mourning the death of their kids, many of whom had nothing to do with the conflict, and they're trapped too. You know, Hamas has prevented Gazans from leaving when Israel said you have to leave. Mm -hmm. You know, very complicated situation. As far as the future, um, I, I, it's a very incisive question to ask, and I will tell you that I think no one has a good answer. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the concerns, is that no one knows what the future will hold. There's some discussion now of the possibility that the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank, yeah. with whom Hamas has itself a brutal relationship. There's a very strong internecine fight between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Yeah. And, and Hamas was the victor in that. It killed a number of Palestinians and assumed authority in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority may be the, the place where it, it too has been a very weak leader and needs to be bolstered tremendously if it's going to have credibility. So ideally, there is some unified, I think there should be some unified Palestinian control over the West Bank and Gaza in two states. But we, it seems like a very elusive thing to say today when things mm -hmm. are so horrific. Yeah. yeah. As a congressman, how can you improve discourse, particularly in L.A.? Because I know there's a lot of people that feel close to the Palestinian perspective, a lot of people that feel close to the Israeli perspective. But no one's willing to listen to each other. They're protesting in the streets and yelling at everybody. But that's what that's what I'm noticing, at least here, is that there's very highly opinionated people that are almost getting violent, but no one's discussing with each other. You know, that is a really sharp thing to say. I teach at a university campus now, and I just had there was a, I was teaching on Thursday, and that and in the middle of my class there had been a pre-scheduled walkout in support of the Palestinians. And so one of my students said to me before class started, you'll forgive me, but at 1.15, I need to leave the class to participate in this. And I said, I think, you know, you need to do what you need to do. Ironically, I had a guest speaker in my class that day who is in charge of the city's Department of Civil and Human Rights, who was speaking at precisely the same moment. <laughs> um, I've talked wow. about the Hamas-Israeli conflict in my class. And, you know, there are many professors around the nation now have been for a while counseling their colleagues not to discuss controversial topics on a college campus of any kind, let alone this, yeah. because it's, it creates uh, eruptions of protest and worse in their, in their campuses. I've said to my students from the very beginning, we're going to discuss really controversial topics, we're going to do so with respect and attempts to understand each other. You will say things that you, where people disagree with you and you will respond in a way that reflects the best of who you are. Mm -hmm. And fascinatingly, in my class, with many, many controversial topics, including this one, we've been able to maintain precisely that kind of discourse. So this has to do, I think, in part with leadership. You know, leaders need to set the tone and model what it means to do the thing that you said we meant we need to do most, which is listen. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you, just as you guys are, are growing up and your peers are emerging as leaders, 
Um, you might consider, when I talk to young people considering public service or law, I say to them that speaking skills are way overvalued compared to listening skills, mm -hmm. which are not taught, are very undervalued, and you've got it exactly right, the failure to listen is preventing people from learning from each other, yeah. especially people they disagree with, mm -hmm. because there's always, there's something of value to be gained when you listen carefully to the person who is directly opposed to your point of view. It may either, either solidify your perspective, or it may teach you something that changes your perspective. Yeah. yeah. Insightful. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> so we got a little heavy there. Uh, we're going to shift to kind of a discussion of Congress. Sure. Um, pardon my French, but, uh, you know, we can't say it's a shit show, but Congress is a little... <laughs> yeah, right. The House is kind of in a shit show right now. So I guess my question is, why do you want to be there? Why do you want to run for Congress? Yeah, so it actually very much has to do with some of the issues we've been talking about so far. There are a couple choices we have when things get really rough. Mm -hmm. We can choose to be spectators and kind of tune out. It's too much for us. Other people will handle it. Or we can step in and try to make a meaningful difference. And I will say it is not an easy thing to make the choice to step in and make a difference, especially in a moment as volatile and as messed up as this. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I'm running. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I have always felt that the toughest times are the times that test who we are. Mm -hmm. So sure. I know that sounds very idealistic, but and it's tough. I, it, it's not an easy thing to do. Being in public service right now is to be involved in some very corrosive and bitter conversations, to put it gently. Um, it's a real lack of respect for Congress as an institution. Um, it's funny, I, I got a text from a member of Congress the other day who said to me, God knows why you want to be here now, but, yeah. but you will make a difference on day yeah. one. Yeah. And because this person had served with me previously in, in mm -hmm. the assembly. So I think that, not, I'll tell you a very quick story. Before we started this podcast, I was alluding to the fact that my father had been a prisoner of war to the Nazis in World War II. Mm -hmm. And just very quickly, so when I was a kid, I was about your age actually, I was probably a, maybe a sophomore in high school. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was um, an athlete, I, I was pitching to my father. My father was a public school educator for 60 years. And if on the weekend, if I, he had this old catcher's mitt from the depression, if I could make his, his hand hurt when I was throwing to him, I was doing a good job. So I asked my dad in one of those moments why he chose his job. And he told me in more detail than he previously had about his experience as a prisoner of war to the Nazis. Well, so just really quickly, my dad was what was called a turret gunner in a B-24 bomber. That means that underneath the airplane is a little glass wall, and he was jammed into it with heavy machine guns to fend off oncoming Nazi fighter planes. In, in a fighter plane? And he was in a bomber. Oh, bomber. the bigger yeah. ones? Wow. Yeah. So, so, and you know, crazy. he was just a little bit He was 21 when he did that. Mm -hmm. He enlisted to do that. So he was on the last mission he was able to fly on, and the plane got what's called flat from the ground mm -hmm. and was shot down. By, and, by Nazis? Yeah. And so, parenthetically, you know, the plane is crashing, and there's a little kind of a funny story with all this. As the plane is crashing, the guys in the plane know enough to turn the turret around from the inside so my dad can climb back into the plane, which otherwise he couldn't do by himself. Okay. And he grabbed a parachute. Mm -hmm. They had never trained my father to parachute. This was when the Air Force was called the Army Air Corps. Wow. So he jumped out of the airplane and he pulled the ripcord 
either a parachute or that's hold a small chute inflates first and then the big one comes out yeah so my dad pulls a cord the small one comes out and he thinks to himself oh my god i got the kid's parachute by mistake but then he got serious because the, the parachute inflated he got to the ground and the nazis were firing at him as he was landing wow, and he was taken to stalag 17. they made a very famous movie a few decades ago about that prisoner of war camp wow. we're jewish to be a Jewish prisoner of war to the Nazis was horrible. That was an exclusively Jewish camp? No. Oh. No, no. This was a camp where Jewish prisoners got treated much worse than other mm-hmm. prisoners yeah. did. But the, but the thing I wanted to mention to you guys is this. My dad said to me, and I'm throwing to him, he said, you know, at the end of the war, the, Amer- the Russians were coming to liberate the camp. And the Russians and the Nazis had a very brutal relationship, so the Nazis picked up the camp to run from the Russians. Yeah, I a And my father couldn't walk because he suffered serious injuries when he parachuted to the ground, and the Nazis wouldn't give him boots that fit him. So my dad constructed a little tiny, with some scraps of wood, a little kind of cart to hold on to, and my father said, picture a long line of POWs marching across Austria in the snow, and there I was with a guard, with a German shepherd. The guard had a gun, he could have killed me at any time. No one would have heard the sound. We were so far behind everybody else. And my father said, I did not think I would live through that. But when I did, my father was a really, really brilliant guy. He would have liked my dad very much. (laughs) But um, he said, he could have made a lot of money, but he decided when he survived, I will do the most important work in the world. And he had seen war, and that work was you. That work was kids. So he became a teacher and then a school principal and volunteered for for 60 years in schools. That's the reason, though, to run for Congress, or to find in your lives some way to express why life matters. Yeah. You choose the most important work you can. Not the one where you're gonna have the biggest car, the biggest house, the most important work, and you do it. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds very idealistic, but that's been the motivator for me throughout my career, um, is to try to find a way to express that. The most important work. Yep. Well, it's wow. an amazing story. Thank you. Um, I don't know how we can ask better questions. That was an amazing answer. Thank you. You guys have some terrific questions, yeah. actually. Thank you. Um, All right. The second part of that Congress question was, yeah. how do you think the uh, 2024 election will change Congress? Yeah, I think that the Democrats will retake Congress, the House, mm-hmm. because there are so many of those Republicans occupying seats that President Biden won in previous elections. And those are endangered species, those, those people represented, yeah, because okay. their constituents did not elect them to throw flames, to impeach Biden, to do all the crazy stuff that you hear from happening. They elect those people to pursue getting the economy under control, getting their kids good education. Mm-hmm. And they're associated, those representatives, with the worst elements of the most extreme Republicans right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the House changes hands. I'm very concerned about the Senate. Yeah. We just saw this past week. Mansion. That's right. Mansions, retirement, and combined with his potential presidential aspirations. Yeah. Those those two things taken together, each of them is horrible individually, together really bad. Mm-hmm. Because the Senate cannot change hands. Yet this is a very perilous time. And I can't imagine a new President Trump. And um if Manchin or other credible third party candidates were to run, they're almost guaranteeing that's the outcome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, awesome. so this is more kind of similar questions, yeah. but looking forward to 2024, outside of the House, 
Oh, uh, we have just a few. Like na- the national level. The national level. There okay, we'll just run through a few quick ones. Will Trump's candidacy, candidacy survive all the legal problems? It depends if he's convicted. Mm-hmm. If he's not convicted, yes. If he is convicted, it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does, does Nikki Haley have a chance? Uh, no one has a chance against Trump unless he's convicted maybe more than once. Yeah. And will he be in prison, do you think? I don't know. Yeah, that's the, also, in time, he can just appeal and appeal and appeal before the election. Okay. Biden is getting hammered daily. Yeah. Either it's a bad poll or someone is telling him to retire. Will the president survive this barrage of bad news? Uh, politics has ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly he'll get through this immediate period. But whether he is, the, is reelected as president is uh, an open question. Yeah. And I think that's pretty horrifying for the nation right now. Because the ironic thing is, as president, he's been doing a very good job. If you were to identify the list of things he's accomplished, and just without naming who did them, ask people, ask historians, is this a good president? They would say, this president has been a very accomplished leader, especially mm-hmm. in this very divided time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the president also, because he's older, you know, for many younger voters, he symbolizes an old guard. They want change. Yeah. The thing that I hope that all voters think about, assuming President Biden is the nominee, people need to think about what the alternatives are. Because sometimes people who are very critical of an elected official, mm-hmm. like, like Biden in this case, do so in isolation from thinking about who their opponents might be. Okay. The president needs to make this ideally a binary choice, mm-hmm. right, between him and somebody else, yeah. as opposed to just being about him. Yeah. If the election is about him, he's not going to win. He's probably not going to win. If the election is about the choice, yeah, he can win. Yeah. And that's the the tactic that Democrats nationally need to pursue, which is why it's not beneficial to have third party candidates and mm-hmm. others at the fringes take mm-hmm. a few votes here and there. Yeah, it I just agree. splits it up. I don't think yeah. how it doesn't matter how good he is for the country. <clears throat> he's not going to run on himself. That will work. He has to run. Well, he can he can say here are the things I've accomplished, mm-hmm. and Democrats need to do a much better job of communicating what those accomplishments yeah. are, oh, yep. especially in contrast to what the Republican leadership is proposing. Okay. Yeah. Are there alternative options in the Democratic Party? Like, for example, Dean Phillips, who Jack and I interviewed already. Yes, I know you interviewed him, mm-hmm. and I'm very sorry he's running. Yeah. I mean, you may have launched his presidential career, <laughs> and that will make me very happy with the two of you. Um, <laughs> but, but, he, but he is, um, uh, yeah, certainly I have respect for people who want to pursue their political aspirations, but this is not the time. To, he has no chance of winning. He does have a chance to take a few votes here and there from Biden, and we've seen that story before. When Gore ran against yeah. Bush and Ralph Nader took enough votes away from Gore that Bush became president. He's not going to run in the general election if he loses, though. I don't think that's what his goals are. I don't know what his goals are. I think... I don't, yeah, I don't think he's going to... It's unclear to me what his goals are. Mm-hmm. I agree. Is it, is it personal yeah. fame? Personal fame is a crummy goal. No, is, it, is it because there's something about his candidacy that he thinks will help the country? I'm interested in knowing what that is because I can't find it right now. What, he's told, what he told us is that he honestly does not believe that Biden has a good enough chance of winning and that scares him. He thinks strictly by numbers, he's, he thinks Biden was doing a great job, strictly by numbers, he has a better chance of winning a general election against Trump. I don't know if that's true. Dean Phillips but that's has, what... has uh, about as much chance of being the Democratic nominee as an elephant does to fly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah, I mean, Sam and I both like him, but no, no, honestly, this is, I don't this know is, how this much. Is a, there are separate questions. Yeah. Is he a person who is intelligent and has integrity and has pursued public service for the right reasons? I don't know him, but I'm assuming the answer to the question is he's yeah. all those things. Yeah. That's not the question. Yeah. The question, to put it very directly, is this. If Trump wins, we will have four more years of squandering an effort to combat the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. You and your kids are going to suffer tremendously, maybe irreversible harm, just from that alone. Just from four years, yeah. Let alone Trump becoming a president and exacting revenge on his political enemies. Let alone having him say to the bureaucracy, only people who like and agree with me are allowed to serve anymore. Let alone what he will do around the world where he admires Putin and so forth. There are so many risks to his presidency that we know about because we've seen him in action before then unless a third-party candidate like Dean Phelps or anybody else thinks that they have a reasonable chance of altering the course of history in a way that prevents Trump from winning, mm-hmm. then they should get the heck away yeah. and allow those who do have a chance it's to occupy that them. field. Yeah. That's what I think. On that topic, let's talk about the uh, independence here. Um, what what do you think of like a legitimate third-party challenger like you know Joe Manchin or like John Huntsman? What are their chances? You know, I think generally, you know, there's this uh, no labels team that is yeah. Yeah. that's trying to promote that kind of candidacy. Uh, don't have a chance to win. There's a lot of those guys right now, like the mm-hmm. author Marianne. Uh, well, Marianne Williamson ran before. She runs every time. Yeah, she was well, a couple times before. She's yeah. from here. She's from this area. Uh-huh. Um, I think that those candidates are saying something that superficially appeals to some Americans. Yeah. Which is we're sick and tired of people yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. But by the way, look at Joe Manchin for a second. While I would hate to have his departure from the Senate mean Republicans are in control, here's a guy with coal mining interests who has rejected the climate crisis as a major problem and fought tooth and nail to prevent your future from being as bright as it could be Mm -hmm. by preventing there from being much more bold action on the climate crisis, almost single-handedly. So this business about being a moderate person Sounds good superficially, but he literally single-handedly could have, he, I think he derailed a huge amount of investment in yeah. our attack on the climate crisis. <clears throat> and, <throat> and so I think we need to be real with each other about what candidates really stand for. We can say superficially, he's for trying to cut through the yelling at each other, but if that means moderation on things that we can't afford to be moderate about, like, see, the, I, I never use the term climate change because it's very innocuous. It's a change. doesn't mean very much. Mm-hmm. It's a crisis. Climate it's crisis. an emergency. Mm-hmm. So, and I think many of the issues we confront our nation right now rise to that level. And you need to be asking politicians, what are you going to do that's bolder than just, it's a minor incremental steps here. And yeah. yeah. Bolder yeah. than just like, oh, let's, let's reach across the aisle and... See, I agree with finding common ground in politics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there are some issues where you need to be saying, we can't be just moving a little bit this way or that yeah. way. And, and that's an issue with our structure of government right now. You know, the, the, the founding founders of our democracy anticipated slow-moving government, checks and balances, right, mm-hmm. designed to have incremental change. And that model works very well for certain kinds of issues but not when the planet is under threat, for example. Yeah. I almost think it would be better right now to have a Republican in mansion seat because there'd be so much more motivation from Democrats to like really win the Senate, but now there's this false like 
narrative that the Democrats have the Senate when nothing can really get done with such a moderate like him and a cinema, right? Cinema's well, yes, yeah. but, but for what it's worth, right. if there were, you know, the Senate rules are such that when there's a close division between yeah. Republicans and Democrats, so everything gets very, very slow. Yeah. And again, some of those rules were designed to prevent major changes, tectonic shifts from happening in politics, but maybe we need a few tectonic shifts from time to time. Um, See, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you put, go back to the framers of the Constitution. <coughs> they, they weren't confronting the kinds of truly existential threats to the existence of the mm. world that we're confronting now. And I think it, we need to be thinking hard about how we handle that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Let's get a little more local here. Let's do LA. it. Um, a current discussion in the LA City Council is expanding yeah. the seats from 15 to whatever number. First, what do you think of this? And second, what is your, what is the Mike magic number? What, how many seats do you think there should well, be? Well, I, I propose this actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So okay. I'm a proponent of that. Um, and let me tell you why. We have each council district in the city, and I was a city council member, as you mentioned, has about 260,000 constituents. So my council district, when I was city councilman, was bigger than most of the cities in the United States, which is my council district, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? I had a lot of power, mm-hmm. but it also means that on a day-to-day basis, it's not easy for a constituent to have access to their council member when there are a quarter million of you out yeah. there. And it also means that the city council as a body is not as diverse as it could be because only 15 people in a city of this size. You know, Chicago has like three and a half times as many council members, yeah. and it's a smaller place. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm in favor of expanding the council, but the way to frame it as a political matter is I'm in favor of reducing the size of council districts to create a closer connection, closer connection. to yep. the constituents yeah. and okay. their council member. There's no magic number. You could say we'll double the size. Mm-hmm. Something of that nature, I think, yeah. makes yeah. sense. Oh, yeah. I like that idea. Okay, backtracking here. This is the question that we usually begin all our interviews with, but we'll ask it at the end or near the end. Um, when did you know you wanted to get into politics? How, would, how What was your political life like as a teen? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wasn't necessarily aspiring to be in politics per se mm-hmm. when I was your age. Yeah. But I was very interested in changing the world when I was mm-hmm. your age. And politics was certainly one of the things that I thought about. What's interesting, you mentioned that I ran that SEDIC, which means, yeah. that means House of Justice. Mm-hmm. And it provides free legal work to the very poorest yeah. people in the city. But we also, when I was there, I led us to advocate for changes in federal, state, and local law, as well as going before judges and stuff. At some point, I decided it would be better to be the decision maker than to be the advocate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I, that's why I ran, even though I took a big risk when I ran. I ran against mm-hmm. great people who were much more famous than I was. <laughs> I was looking to get creamed when I ran. Um, and by the way, that's a lesson for you guys, too, though. I think there are moments in life when you need to take risk. I mean, a lot of people are afraid of risk. And I don't think being reckless is a good idea, but I think that taking a chance in favor of something really hard and being prepared to lose Dean is okay. Yeah, but see, I don't think that in his heart of hearts he thinks he's going to win. No, I don't think he's going to win. I think he's just being I mean, a primary challenger to Biden. I think he, he's, he's not going to challenge him in the general election. He's not going to run his third party. He is generally challenging him in the primary, and if he loses, he's done, and he'll endorse Biden. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see about how that goes. I'm an advocate right now. I know you are. I can, and by the way, he did a good job because he inspired you to believe in him, and I think that's something yeah. to, that's to his credit. 
All right, one sentence here. What do you make of Kevin DeLeon? Short and sweet. <laughs> you have a chuckle. I well, chuckle. You know, I served with Kevin mm-hmm. in the state legislature. I know him pretty well. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure what the question is. If the question is, do I think that he should have resigned in the wake of what he said in that conversation, mm-hmm. the and what he didn't say in the conversation as well? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. We context here. Well, you want to provide context for that question. Uh, <clears throat> Kevin came under fire after Anne Nuri Martinez, and who was the third? He's a, he's a councilman, third, right? Third council yep. member. Um, LA for Council. Making some racist comments. Racist remarks. On tape? On, on tape. Ca- on, yeah, there was yeah. a, there's a private was, conversation with yeah. the head of the, 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 Calif- the Los Angeles Federation of Labor, and um, uh, there were things said about people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds yes. that no one should think, let yeah. alone, alone say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a participant in that conversation. And I think it raises some very important questions that go far beyond him. And they're very relevant to you and your friends. Yep. Yeah. And those questions have to do with, what do you do when you're in a situation when someone does or says something that you think is completely contrary to what you believe in, or hateful, or worse? Mm-hmm. Do you let it go? Do you just stand there and let it happen? And then, you know, there are, I think what happens with Kevin DeLeon is, is not a very important question compared to these much deeper questions. Yeah. You know, you mentioned my dad. My dad, when he was a volunteer in public schools, which he did until he was 92, used to hold sessions with students in a thing called Community Circle, and they were like fourth and fifth graders. And he'd have them discuss things like, what do you do when your friend wants you to cheat, help him cheat on a test? Or your buddy's being bullied on the playground, but you're scared of the bully too. You know, how do you deal with those kinds of very real-life issues? And I think some of the most defining moments in your lives are going to be like where you're in a situation where you are an observer to something that really gets to you, but there's risk associated with stepping in. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it's very easy to say and much harder to do, but I hope that you've been learning from your folks and from your teachers and from your peers about how essential it is not to stand by and watch. Some of the worst moments in our history as a, as a, as a people have been when someone stood by and watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sanders. Just saying. All right. Well, that wraps up the, um, I guess I want to say, serious, serious questions. Okay. So we're going to transition to the lightning round, which is just three quick questions. Ice cream flavors. Exactly. Favorite restaurant in LA. Oh, gosh. This could make or break your campaign right now. <laughs> yeah, it could. And um, see, I'm, the reason I'm pausing is I'm, a, I'm not a big fancy restaurant guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a big yeah. fan of there's a family that owns the restaurant. Oh, yeah. And, Home you know, style. it's kind of a yeah. small of, business. Yeah, see, one of my very favorite restaurants doesn't exist anymore. A place called the Gardens of Tosco used to exist in West Hollywood. Okay. And I used to love it because the, the owner used to come by and have no menu. He'd just tell you what was just on the menu. That's cool. And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg off the question because I'm not sure. There, I, there's, there's too many good ones. Too many, too many yeah. good ones in that yeah. category. Throw right. a single one out. <laughs> okay. Um, what is your favorite Los Angeles sports team? So I... Probably say the Rams. Mm-hmm. Wow! But um, tough season now. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, because what what's fascinating though is 
because they're supposed to have a horrible season because they lost some of their best players and they actually started <clears throat> off being really competitive. Yeah. But they had some injuries and it's been a, a tough year yeah. for them. You can't win the Super Bowl and then instantly become terrible. No, they, it doesn't they, work like they, that. They kind of, they kind of did. But, um, but I'm, I've been a Rams fan since I was your age. I'm a, before then. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm a basketball player, so I've been a Lakers fan yeah. since. They used to I play at this, what used to be called the Sports Arena next to oh, yeah. USC That's uh, before the yeah. forum. Before where the and, and I, I can't even say Crypto.com. No. <laughs> it's, it's still staples. It's, it's, at, at a minimum, it's still yeah. staples. I, uh, that's right. Intuit Dome, go Clippers. Huh. The, the, the new Clippers, Clippers arena. Oh, Clippers. He's a Clippers. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, and and the, the, the thing about the Clippers is the Clippers have a chance to, you know, they've always been kind of the other team in Los Angeles. Yeah. They have a chance to become the exciting new team. So there's yeah. a little benefit now. Uh, I think the Clippers are eleven and one against the Lakers last twelve games. Yeah, I think I Clippers are never going to win. Yes. I'm sorry. And, and, and I did throw out the first second. pitch of the Dodgers game. So really? Oh wow! Wow. wow. So. Go Dodgers. A little bit of pressure associated with that, by the way, just so you know. That could be our Instagram post, your first pitch. Yeah, <laughs> it could be. I don't know where it more memorialized. I'm not sure. Go ahead. The Dodgers are going to be good next year. I think they're going to yeah. sign Shohei Otani. No. But last lightning round is favorite vacation spot. In the world. In the world. Let's say outside of America. So I will tell you, I love, I love traveling. Um, mm-hmm. So it depends on what mood I'm in. We, we went... For example, to I, I, my first job as a law student in the summer was to work in Bangkok. Right. And when I got married, I took my wife back and we had a really good <coughs> trip in, in the areas or in and around Thailand, which I really, really liked. Um, but I also love going to Mexico. I've been mm-hmm. to tons of cities in Mexico that people don't normally go to. Because yeah. I, love, I like being not just at the beachy places, but the culturally interesting places. Yeah. And um, I love being in, in Europe. Oh, a great a great vacation place that people don't talk about is Croatia. Croatia, Croatia split. is a very well, split and Dubrovnik, but also there's, there's this Sogni? place called Plavitsi Falls where there are these cascades of this beautiful water, water colors and waterfalls mm-hmm. everywhere. I would say that that's one of my favorite place vacation spots was to go to Croatia, actually. Yeah. Well, that concludes the interview. Thank you for coming on. Good. Thank Uh, you very much. See you at the game show. Indonesia, the capital of Indonesia. We learned this in human geography class. Yeah, no, which talk, I am. We talk about this city. I surprisingly do well in, even though I'm not doing well in these geography questions. All right, tell me what the capital of Indonesia is. I don't. I have no. It's Jakarta. Jakarta. Okay. Smooth. Ready? Yep. So my questions this week are yep. centered around Napoleon. Yeah, because the movie comes. There's a new Napoleon movie. I'm gonna get all these right. Sam Greenberg, what years did Napoleon serve as emperor? From when to when? Seventeen. 99 to 1815. I'll accept that. What was it, actually? That's too close. No, 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 that's correct. Loud dog, loud dog. Sorry, my dog is Oh my god, this dog. It's all good. Okay. It's all good. Who cares? We're going to have dog sounds in this game show. A little character never hurt. Alright, hit me. What was it, actually? It was correct. I think it was like 1802 or 1815 or something. 
Name all five Republican uh, candidates in the, that were in the debate. The debate? Yeah. There's five of them. So you get that. Um, Haley. Bang. Scott. Yeah. De Sanctimonious. Sanctimonious. Who wanted Sanctimonious? Uh, Christy. Mm-hmm. Was Asa Hutchins in there? No. Bro. Come on. Pence? No. Pence dropped out. You kidding? Hold on, hold on, hold on. You said Haley, Scott, Ron Sanctimonious, Chris Christie. Oh, and Vivek. Yeah, okay. Oh, if you were That's crazy. Okay. I thought I said Vivek. Okay. My turn. Mm-hmm. In theme with the new Napoleon movie. Alright, yes. Who is directing the film? Uh, and Ridley, who is starring? Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix. That'd be correct. Thank you. Wait, if I get this wrong, it's over. Uh, name three Soviet dictators. <sighs> There's two easy ones that I'm gonna, you're gonna have to dig into that brain to get a third one. Three Soviet dictators. Okay, so we have Stalin. Giuseppe. We have Stalin. Oh, yeah. Come on. Marx? No. Fair. Nope. Jack. All I know is Stalin. Better get at least one. This is pre Stalin, right? Yo, if you. Yes. This Russian Revolution Day? Yeah. Bro. Yeah. Who is. Come on. Come on. Come on. Lenin. There we go. Five minutes. Five. You know anymore? No. Okay, just. The the an the pig from Animal House. Nope, the pig from That's uh, the pig from, from Animal House. From, no, Animal House is a movie about college. Animal Farm. Animal Farm, yeah. Stalin's Animal House is a great movie. I'm recommending that movie okay. right now. Okay. Um, so yeah. I know Stalin and Lenin. That's all I know. Gorbachev. No. Yeah. The, the guy with the mole. I would have not gotten that. I would have gotten Putin. Who? Just say Putin. It's not like he's not Soviet. Oh, Putin. He's not Soviet, but I'll give you. No, I'm, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna give it to you. Thanks, doll. Last question. Where did Napoleon die? It was an island. St. Helena in the Atlantic. That would be correct. Have you got two? Have you got both of mine? You got all three right, and I got two Oh, you right. missed Indonesia. Yeah. All right. I win! What is the capital of Indonesia Jakarta. Jakarta. Sam 3-0. This was, I really enjoyed making this episode. This today. is one of my favorite episodes episode. of all time. It's going to be long. Probably my favorite. It's going to be long, but it's... Listening to this I would listen to every minute of it. It's a good episode. Um, All right. See ya. Bye.